Right. So what's the rule when I'm speaking? Get up and stand, move anytime you want to. I even tell people that in church. You know, when you look at when you look at large sample studies in the United States, it does not matter what religion, what church you're talking about. On any given day when there is a service there, you got two thirds what, male or female? Female, two thirds female. And the males who are there are what? Falling asleep because they they can't move. They're supposed to be they're supposed to sit down, shut up, and listen. So I tell pastors, take the last six rows out of the church, last six rows of pews. That's what they do in Europe. You walk into a Greek Orthodox church, and the the chairs are missing from about the back third, and the men are all standing back there a lot of them, and they're awake. And the women are sitting, but, you know, things change very slowly. All right, let's go. Let's see if I got this. Okay, brain benders, top left. Two words. Up is one, it is another. Give me a phrase. Pardon? Get up with it. Get up with it. Um, that could work. Well, if I had put this at the top of the box, put up with it would be an excellent. Um, I never even thought of that solution. That'd be great. Do you have an expression here? He's up against it. So I was thinking up against it, but obviously my brain was not with the collective here today. All right, second on the left. The word is pig. (laughs) I just put things backwards sometimes just to give your brain extra challenge. Uh, it's nothing about in anything in the middle. Are, is it uppercase or lowercase? Okay. Three little pigs. Third on the left. Grow up, that works. Fourth on the left. Yes, I did that especially for you. <laughs> Top right. The word is... Ever, forever, very basic. Uh, second on the right. Now that one is backwards for a reason. Stuck up. There you go. Third on the right. Mary go round and fourth on the right. You got to sort of run that one together. What is this a symbol for? And, and where is it in the box? Up, all right, up. Up and at them. There you go. All right, here's one, in, one of those paintings again, which I love. What do you see? Do you all see the components, and then when you just look at the whole thing, it looks like a a face in an ice field? I'm going to turn it over again. Is this one easier, or does it make any difference? It was blind in the right eye. Hmm. It looks different to my brain when I turn it over. It just, it, my brain just looks at it slightly differently. And that may be because you have a lead eye, most people do, and your lead eye tends to look at the opposite side of whatever it's looking at. So I happen to have a right lead eye. So when I look at it this way, 
you know, I see this part, you know, there's a guy sitting there with boots. And when I look at it this way, I see this man with a spear. I can find that, but it doesn't jump out at me like that. So if you had a left lead eye, then it might make a difference in what you saw first. All right, technology. I am not here to complain about technology. I love every bit. I got myself an iPad the other day, and I carry my brain aerobic exercises with me so that I can do my 30 minutes of age-proofing every day using some of those because there's really good research about that. So I love technology. And in the States, I will tell you that some of the school districts are getting a little bit um, on board with this. So there's several schools that I'm aware of in Northern California that when you enroll your child, they give you an iPad and you do all your work on your iPad and you load it up to the cloud. Took me a while to realize what they were talking about. I said, where is such and such? It's in the cloud. And I'm going, okay, that sounds like an excuse to me. Where is the cloud? And I finally got that together. They, they load it into the cloud. They're done. The teacher, from anywhere he or she wants to be, downloads it from the cloud, you know, evaluates it, corrects it, puts comments on it, gives it a grade, sends it back up to the cloud, and if the kid cares, take a look at the grade. That's wonderful for a whole group of uh, children who really find it so exhausting to form letters writing, but don't find it exhausting at all to type. So it's different strokes for different folks, and that's really turning out to be great for some kids. So there's all kinds of stuff you can do. In life, we always give up something to get something. And we're just now beginning to understand what we're giving up with the technology that we get. And that's not necessarily good, bad, or right or wrong. It's just you need to know that so you can manage your use of technology to avoid some of the downsides. So what are some of the downsides? And we'll talk a little bit more about this. Well, first of all, depending on how much time you spend with technology, you can have inconsistent myelination of the layers of the brain. Do you remember what myelination is? What is it? It's paving, black topping, myelin is the brain's asphalt. It's paving the neuron highways in the brain. And until that gets done, you don't have really consistent access to the fast transmission of information across those highways. Demyelination is a problem. That's what happens in conditions such as multiple sclerosis. The brain misidentifies this paving as not belonging there and chews it all up. And now you cannot get smooth transmission of information to even tell the muscles to work properly. You get overdevelopment of reptilian areas of the brain. We'll talk about that. Stunted personal and mental growth in many cases, lack of interpersonal skills, and suppressed immune system function because life gets out of balance. So those are some of the downsides, and so let's talk about some of the research. To do that, let me remind you that you can describe the brain as three functional layers. And this is a cutaway of the brain. Some of you were here and saw that this morning. There's the brain stem and cerebellum. There's the middle layer. There's the corpus callosum, that curved whitish area. Then you've got this top cortex, the rind on a watermelon. So I just printed off a picture, cut it apart, pulled it apart, rescanned it, so you can see there are the layers. Paul McLean in the early 1900s was the first person that I know of to clearly say, I really think that functionally the brain is composed of three layers. And his colleagues were not amused because back then we had no brain imaging equipment. 
And the story reminds me of Galileo. No, I did not know him personally. (laughs) And what did Galileo say, among other things? He said the earth revolves around the sun. He also said the earth is round. And what was the belief back then? That the earth was flat. And they were so sure that the earth was flat that they kicked him out of the church, disfellowshipped him, put him under threat of death, under house arrest, and he did not have a good 15 years. And then somebody developed a telescope. And what did we find? The world is round. And even some of the people who looked through the telescope didn't believe it. So I think we, as the book of Daniel says, knowledge, is, knowledge will really increase in end times. I see that happening in brain function. And certainly all the brain imaging equipment is giving us more information. So avoid rushing to judgment when somebody comes up with something new because over and over and over again, it gets proven to be accurate. So about um, 45 years into his career, we got brain imaging equipment, and lo and behold, as my father would say, there are three functional layers, and they each contribute different things. And then uh, some of his colleagues ate a lot of crow, and he did have the last few years of his life some validation for that. I don't know. How is it that some brains take available knowledge and leap to a conclusion that turns out to be accurate. It's, it's wonderful. All right, so let's talk just a bit about each layer. This uh, first layer, the brain, stem, cerebellum, and connections to the spinal cord, is called the reptilian layer because... Because that's all reptiles have. Good. That is all they have. So if you are a reptile or you are a human and you have that piece of the brain, when you're in that first layer, you're only aware of what's happening right now in the present. It contains all the stress responses, fight, flight, tend, befriend, conserve, withdraw. It houses all those dopamine neurons that secrete dopamine that then are carried by axons to different parts of the brain. It's very egocentric, meaning when you're down in that part of the brain, it's all about me. That part of the brain just directs all attention to the self. And this is where you have the motor neurons that load the motor programs, rapid automatic responses to video games. So as you play more and more and more, you get better and better and better in most cases. So I was doing this in another country not long ago, and I was talking about this is the first layer. And guy, I assume it was his wife, he turns to her and whispers, oh, this is not pretty. They've just described our daughter's boyfriend. <laughs> just exactly what every father wants his daughter to marry. And I thought, hmm, well, better check it out now. So the mammalian layer is called mammalian because all mammals have it. Are we mammals? Yes. So remember, present tense only. So the bear who's been trying to steal honey is aware that his south side is not feeling too good. But that's all he's aware of at the moment, or she, and will make some decision, run away, fight, so on. But now you get to the mammalian layer and you get present and past ability to process. So now he can or she can connect the fact that the honey came from the hive and that's, he was stealing honey and that's how come the bees didn't like it and they altered his physique for a while. And so you can at least put that together you might learn enough to avoid it in the future, but probably you have to get up to the third layer to do that. 
generates emotional impulses. That's the reason I believe all crimes of passion occur in that second layer. Emotional impulse, and it's so fast that you're into the behavior before you've thought about the consequences. And maybe it would have been a good idea to count to five instead of altering the shape of the other, other person's nose. Uh, hippocampus, search engine, that's how you can go out and search your brain for information about a topic or pull up the picture of your mother, something like that. And when you connect with others, because there's a lot of functions in a subconscious part of the brain about relationships, you release oxytocin, and oxytocin is the bonding uh, chemical, the bonding hormone. So if you keep talking to people regularly by phone, tweet, text, and so on, better make sure they're people you want to be connected with because you'll be pouring out oxytocin, which will tend to bond you to them. And if it's somebody you really don't want to bond to, you better stop with the texting and the tweeting. Come up to the third layer. This is where you do have some consciousness, but before you get too excited about that, probably 5 to 10% of what goes on in the brain comes to conscious awareness. And you can only manage what you can label and describe. So the more you can bring to conscious awareness, the more you can manage it. So now, here we've got the little guy who's calling all his friends to go find honey again in the future planning which is entirely different from what happens in that first and second layer all of the executive aspects that help you manage technology and make decisions about technology are loaded up in that top layer especially right here behind the, the forehead and that prefrontal cortex is not done until mid to late 20s so you've got goal-setting, planning, conscience, paying attention, willpower, problem-solving, decision-making. So if you're under 30, you may need somebody to help you with decision-making, especially related to technology. The brain gets rewards from using technology. I find that fascinating. But study after study shows that technology provides chemical brain rewards. You know, your brain is, think of it as just a pot of chemical stew. Especially an adrenaline dopamine rush. And that's what keeps people hooked on technology because of the adrenaline dopamine rush. So especially if you're playing games and competing, you can be even competing against yourself to do it better and faster, you will release adrenaline. And you'll get a hit of energy so you keep on doing it because you have the energy to do it. As long as you're pouring out adrenaline, you got the energy to keep playing. Problem is, if you do this, you know, around the clock, as some people do, you can blow out your adrenal glands, and that's not pretty. And not only as adrenaline goes up do you release dopamine, but you release dopamine whenever you even anticipate doing something that you enjoy. So if you like to tweet and text and talk and whatever. Just thinking about doing it gives you some adrenaline. Uh, so whatever it is you're doing, you get it because of the adrenaline that increases dopamine. But when you are anticipating, I'm, I'm going to talk to so-and-so, I can hardly wait. Well, there you get a little more dopamine, which makes you feel better. So now, the combination, you have more energy and you feel better. Who would not keep doing this if they get more energy and feel better? Because down the line, there's always payback if you get unbalanced. If you're male, you get testosterone, an increase in testosterone when you're playing uh, games on the computer, solving problems and, and competing. Doesn't happen in the female brain, but it does happen in the male brain. So now you've got a male who's playing all these games and he's pumping adrenaline and dopamine and now his testosterone's going up. Well, he would not be dating my daughter on a one-to-one -one date, I can tell you that right now. Oxytocin, we mentioned that. Whenever you connect with people you care about, you put that out. And if you get frustrated, 
Then you pump adrenaline, but now instead of some of the other things, you release cortisol. Cortisol is the stress hormone. And if you keep getting frustrated and keep releasing uh, cortisol, that can be very damaging, especially to the brain. It can actually kill cells in the brain. So we say that people are addicted to technology. No, they're not. Not remotely. They are addicted to their own internal substances that are released as they use technology. So you can get addicted to adrenaline. You can get addicted to dopamine and so on and so forth. And if you do, then you just can't set electronics aside for any amount of time because you feel like there's something wrong because you're not getting those internal chemicals secreted. And your risk of addiction rises based on two things. To the extent that technology is the most exciting thing in your life, and there are some young people that it is the only thing really that they like to do in life. So, to the extent that it is the most exciting thing in your life and your ability to choose to disconnect for periods of time every day. And if it's the most exciting thing in your life, you're probably going to have a lot of difficulty disconnecting, even for 15 minutes. So remember that. All right, what's the downside for technology in terms of learning? I mentioned that briefly already. Learning experiences are encoded in that mammalian layer in something called the hippocampus. That The hippocampus helps consolidate, puts all the pieces of the information together like a puzzle, and then loads it in long-term memory. So what happens to interfere with that? Well, here's another rat study. The rat brain is very like what kind of brains? Humans, thank you. <laughs> That's both male and female. <laughs> I'm never going to live that one down. <laughs> so rats were given a new learning experience, a very complex maze. It actually turns out that rats are generally better at learning mazes than people. They can just learn those mazes very, very quickly. So they give them this complex maze, and they learn it. So let's say you got got 100 rats. So now they break them into two groups. They've learned the maze, so now they got 50 rats here and 50 rats there. Directly after this new learning experience, they push those 50 rats right into another activity. The other 50 rats, they give them 15, 30 minutes of downtime. And then the next day, they see who can, who can find their way through the maze. And what do you suppose happens? The rats that went directly from the new experience to another activity are looking at the maze as if it's brand new, like they've never seen it before. The rats that had the downtime are running it just as well the second day as they did the first day. Now, that's pretty scary for me because that means that with no downtime after learning new information, it's probably not consolidated and put into long-term memory. So the busier these kids are and the more they're rushing from one thing to another, they never consolidate and put into long-term memory what happened in this class before they rush seven minutes through the halls to get to the next class. And so they really are not retaining a lot of what they're learning. And I think that has huge implications for education. The other day I was lecturing in, at, at Middle State, Tennessee, and they, they gave me the time slot, and they said, now when the bell goes, even if you're in the middle of the sentence, the kids will leave. I go, I can stop talking anytime. They said, yeah, but literally, they've got nine minutes to get across campus to the next class. They're just pushing to get there. I wonder how much they're consolidating and putting into long-term memory. So the deal is that every single day, depending on what it is you're trying to do, you need to shut off electronics and give your brain some time to consolidate and move the new information into long-term memory. And that's got to be a conscious choice. The ability to delay gratification is critical for any type of success in life. 
And if you are on electronics, you know what, 18 out of 24 hours a day, and you do not choose to have downtime, you are not going to learn the skills of delayed gratification. And, of course, that's going to be difficult if you're already addicted to adrenaline and dopamine. So here's another study. Took a bunch of participants who were all very facile with technology, and they gave them a choice. They said, okay, here's the deal. You can answer a text now or send a text, and we'll give you some money. But if you turn off the system and wait a while before you do that, next week we'll give you a bigger monetary reward. And I think it was significant. As I remember, it was like, text now, here's 10 bucks. You know, don't text, wait till next week, you'll get 100. Yeah, for me, there's no question. But many of the kids did not wait till, next, till the next week. So they started looking at what would make the difference that you would give up $100 in favor of 10. What plays into those decisions? Well, the ability to delay electronic gratification was pretty much dependent on who it was texting them or who they wanted to text. It was very dependent on the person they were connecting with. The larger the rush from the specific person, the more difficult it was for them to delay gratification, even, even though they knew they would get $100 instead of 10 That's getting up there with addictive behaviors. Now, Facebook. I do have a Facebook page. You could find me on Facebook if you wanted to. I don't spend three hours a day on Facebook. I don't spend three hours a week on Facebook. I check it, but that's about it. So here's the research. People who spend three hours a day on Facebook tend to occupy self with self. Where is egocentricity located? The first layer. So they get very occupied down in this first layer, self with self. They begin to use functions down here far more than they do these cognitive executive planning functions. They tend to exhibit decreased empathy and compassion, and they overmyelinate these lower areas when what you really want to be working on is myelating the corpus callosum and the anterior commissure and other highways that go throughout the brain. So they myelinate, pave the ones down here, so they get faster and faster at electronics, but it, it outweighs what needs to be done up here in the top. A little, some studies on the amount of texting that teens do. Half of teens in this study send 50 or more text messages a day, which averages out to about 1,500 a month. That's just amazing to me. And one in three sends more than 100 texts a day, which is around 3,000 a month. That's a lot of texting. One of the problems with electronics, I was having dinner the other day in another country in somebody's home, and I was chatting with the husband in the family room, and he said, I think we should be about ready to eat, and I thought, good, I'm hungry. He pulls out his iPhone and texts his wife and says, are you ready for us to eat? She's in the next room, and he's texting her, and I thought, oh my, I wonder what their relationship is like. Guess what? She texts him back. Yes, give me about three minutes. Okay, in order to develop effective socialization skills, the brain needs real-time interaction with real people, with no electronics. And what studies are finding is that people who, who use a lot of technology, you put them in a room where they don't know a soul, and they ask them to start a conversation with somebody, and, and they don't do it well. Sometimes they can actually walk up and say hello, and then they just stand there with the deer in the headlights look because they have no small talk skills. 
And then you say to them, well, couldn't you think of anything to say? And the response is, I could if I was texting. But actually looking at the person, they, they become immobile. And that's going to be unhelpful in any number of careers that you want to mention. They're also finding that executives, the ones that are supposed to be role modeling for the, for the company, they'll often sit there in meetings and text and tweet and work on their phone. And then the employees are given the impression that the executives are unconnected, somewhat disconnected from the group. And some of the unions have been capitalizing on that and using that as a marketing strategy to get the union into the organization. So let's talk a little bit about attention, paying attention. Remember, we talked this morning about the bridges that connect the two hemispheres. Corpus calcium is the largest. Anterior commissure is important as well. And even though those two hemispheres are separated, although connected by bridges, they are all connected to the same brain stem, and that's, you can't have one hemisphere awake and the other one asleep. You know, because they're connected to the same brain stem, some things always happen in both hemispheres. So you stay awake in both hemispheres. It doesn't necessarily mean you're alert, but you do stay awake and you sleep with both hemispheres at the time. So this means that it looks like there's only one integrated attention system, and you can only pay close attention to one thing at a time which will be in working memory. So, the brain wasn't designed for multitasking. You cannot pay attention to different places in the brain at the same time. It's not possible. The male brain cannot multitask to save its life. <laughs> the male brain can simultaneously do two different tasks as long as each one comes out of a different hemisphere. But that gets a little dicey because you have to know which is in which hemisphere. So one of the examples I use is a male can be out in the backyard putting together a swing set for the grandkids with the right hemisphere, probably not even looking at the instructions. I find that egregious. <laughs> with the left hemisphere, holding a conversation about a totally different topic because that comes out of Broca's area. But you need to pay attention to that because if he's out there pounding nails into something and you walk out and start talking to him, he will hit his thumb or he will put in the nail crooked or he will block out the sound of your voice because all of that comes out of the same hemisphere and he can't do simultaneously things simultaneously out of the same hemisphere. Women can't simultask. This is never going to happen. Uh, they don't really do well at multitasking, but they try. And multitasking is never doing anything at the same time. It is rapidly alternating shifts of attention. And we often see that, you know, the mother is stirring porridge with one hand and combing the kid's hair with the other and kicking the dog out of the way with the foot. And they look like it's happening at the same time. It is not. It's rapidly alternating shifts of attention. When you are driving, your brain cannot multitask. It probably cannot even simultask. It is processing all kinds of information, and it's focused on what's happening in traffic and how the car is functioning and what the speed limit is and where you're going and do you need to get over because your exit is coming up and so on and so forth. Talking on the phone, period. You know, there's laws in the States. You can't be in a vehicle um, talking on a phone. <laughs> Supposedly, if they catch you, it's a significantly multi-hundred dollar fine. But you cannot be doing, you can't be talking, using your phone in the car unless you have a built-in system or you have a Bluetooth. Even with that, talking on the phone decreases mindful awareness of traffic conditions and causes 
thousands of accidents every year. The right hemisphere cannot watch traffic while with the left hemisphere, it's tweeting and chattering and twittering and texting and whatever. And the fascinating thing is, in large sample studies, when you ask people if you think they should text and drive, they say no. And then the next question is, are you capable of texting and driving? And what do you think they say? Yes. No, they're not. But they routinely underestimate that. So we're looking at about 100,000 vehicle crashes in the United States uh, a year so far just due to texting. And that's one an hour. It's more than one an hour all year long because those people think they can text and pay attention to traffic. In, this is what I was talking about. In simulations, the drivers really think they can. They can do it. In fact... It can take the brain up to seven seconds to transfer attention from one thing to another and be consciously, cognitively present. So go home and watch the clock for seven seconds and think you're driving. And now you're talking on the phone and something happens and it's going to take you seven seconds to decide what to do. You've already run into the guy by then. So now, in the states, they're introducing legislation so any teenager cannot even use a phone with a Bluetooth or a built-in system. They have to have it completely off while they're driving because the accident rate for teenagers is just so up there. So this is next to my house. Honk if you love Jesus. <laughs> Text while driving if you want to meet him. And we laugh, but that's probably got a lot of truth to it. So distracted walking. Do you hear about distracted walking in, in Australia? That is a new term. You know, hasn't been around very long. Crossing a street while tweeting, texting, cell chatting, or gaming may be dangerous to life and limb, you think? Hospitals all around the country, including the ones in Adventist Health that I'm connected with, are seeing more patients all the time that are being injured because of distracted walking. And we think that it's many, many more people than are actually being willing to report that, yeah, you know, I was texting and not paying attention. But the ones that admit to it, you know, it's just going up exponentially. 1150 patients treated in hospital EDs just in 12 months due to distracted walking injuries. And as I said, we think that's seriously underreported. In fact, there was one guy who was uh, playing a game walking across busy street in San Francisco, uh, got hit by a bus. And when he realized what was happening, he threw his cell phone as far as he could because now some of the insurance companies are saying, if you get an injury while you're crossing the street and you're texting or talking on the phone or something, we don't have to, we don't have to pay for your recovery. So he threw his phone as far away as he could, hoping that you know, nobody would know. And, of course, somebody found the phone and turned it into the police, and guess what? At the precise moment that he was hit, it was really obvious on his phone what he was doing. So distracted walking fatalities have increased by 4.2%. I mean, you're dead from using a cell phone. While injuries have risen by 400% in the United States in the last seven years. So this is now becoming big business. All right, let's talk a little bit about narcissism. An unbalanced use of technology during the years when the brain is developing can stunt growth. When do we think the prefrontal cortex is developed? At what age? Mid to late 20s. Okay. After 30, it's probably not going to stunt growth but you certainly could run the risk of addictive behaviors and injuries and so on. Now, here's, what, here's one of the problems that's being, that is being seen. If the teenage brain fails to mature and move to more balanced behaviors, because it's pretty narcissistic, 
when it's a teenager. Even early 20s, you often see a lot of narcissism, meaning that it's all about me. They're much more concerned about what's happening to them than what's happening to anybody else. If they don't mature, then that brain tends to continue narcissistic behaviors into adulthood. This is where I think we're seeing probably an increase in certain types of problems. Because the antisocial, narcissistic adult often begins to exhibit sociopathic behaviors. So if you've got this teenage brain and it is not developing because it's spending way too much on time on technology and does not move from narcissism to balanced adult behavior, I think we're probably creating some sociopaths which is really not attractive in my brain's opinion. So the teenage brain is not done yet. It's not. The corpus callosum is probably not even myelinated till 20 or 21. So maturing the teenage brain is a learned process. It does not happen automatically and genetically as some other things do. It is a process of teaching that brain how to stop being quite so self-absorbed and to look around and pay attention to what's going on around them and what's happening to other people. So if that doesn't happen, then you're going to carry that narcissism into adulthood. Now here's the interesting news if you're male. Far more narcissists are males than females. And I don't know what that's going to ha- I don't know if that's going to change with increased use of technology because statistically more males than females are really involved with technology. But right now, narcissism is four to one. Four males to one female. And we're seeing the potential for that to increase. So just remember, this is not an automatic process. This is a learned process. And you either learn it or you don't learn it. And if you are addicted to technology, you probably will not learn it. So what are the recommendations? There are seven that have been gleaned from various sources. The first one is practice unplugging from technology by choice. And my bottom line is if I am using one piece of technology, the others are shut off. And somebody said to me the other day, but what if somebody calls you? And I go, and your point would be? I mean, I grew up and we didn't even have a phone. You know, they had to write you a letter or stop by and visit you. And then we got a party line. (laughs) That was fun. (laughs) We learned the rings for the 11 people on our party line. Did any of you grow up with the party line? Well, a couple of you. All right, well, you know what I'm talking about. So if nobody was home to monitor you... And if you were very quiet, on certain rings, you could go over and you could, you know, depress the little piece and lift the, you know, the thing off and and then let it go up really slowly. And my goodness, you could learn a wealth of information in just a a few moments. (laughs) Yeah, well, okay. So if you're focusing on one thing, turn the rest off. When learning new things, memorize this. We all need to learn new things. And especially those of you in college, somebody's paying you or somebody else for you to be here to what? Learn new things. So if you are learning new things, you need to take regular breaks so that your brain can consolidate that new information, put the puzzle pieces together, link it to what you already know, and put it in long-term memory. And you need regular breaks to do that. So leaving class, if you've got 15 minutes between, and jumping on a piece of electronic equipment and spending that 15 minutes texting, tweeting, playing games, whatever, gives you no time to consolidate what you just learned. Walk or bike in nature. I mean, do something every day that is totally free from electronics. When you do large sample studies, 75% of the kids in the studies did none of these activities 
they were doing electronics all the time. So every day, make sure to do something that is free from electronics. One of the things I do is write brain benders. And I have lots of fun doing that. Um, I eventually put them onto my computer, but writing them is a mental process, not an electronic process. This is what American Academy of Pediatrics says. A minimum of 60 minutes per day of unstructured free play is essential to children's physical and mental health. Play is the work of children, and many of them don't have enough play. Adults don't have enough play, so think about that. Four, avoid distracted driving and distracted walking. The leg you save may be your own. The life you save may be your own. Stop texting and tweeting during classes and meetings. I mean, people can wait. Engage in conscious breathing. This is interesting. Research has shown that when really involved, especially in a competitive computer game, people hold their breaths. They're not even breathing. And then they'll gasp every once in a while. They're not getting oxygen to the brain. They're not getting oxygen to the rest of the body. So practice conscious breathing every single day, especially if you catch yourself being the kind of person that's focused on electronics and holding your breath. And this one is hard for some people, but it is so basic, dear Watson. Keep your bedroom free from technology. Sleep disorders are just burgeoning in the United States, and we think that has to do with technology. So, no TV in your bedroom. I'm not going to ask you who's got a TV in your bedroom. No TV in your kids' rooms. Uh, no iPhone, no iPad, no computers, and no clock or anything else that's visible to you with LED lights because LED lights stimulate the brain to wakefulness and interfere with sleep. You don't even get down into deep sleep often. Sleep very lightly and wake up frequently. Shut off all electronics an hour before you go to bed. Before you want to go to sleep, an hour before that, shut off all electronics. And I've had young people sit down in front of me and cry real tears because they just don't see how they could possibly do that. Well, for your health and well-being, that's what you need to do. Because if you look at an LED light, and all of our displays are LED lights, it takes an hour, once you stop looking at those lights, for the brain to dampen down the wakefulness that the lights created. So, as I said when I started, I love technology. It would be very difficult for me to do what I do without technology. But in life, you always give up something to get something. And my belief is that I want to avoid giving up health, good sleep, um, building myelination throughout the brain, not just in one piece. Um, I, I want to... I want to get the benefit of technology, but keep my life so in balance that I have little to no downside. And I believe that's absolutely possible to do. You just have to think ahead. And you have to be willing to make some choices. And you have to develop the skill to implement those choices. So instead of saying, oh, I can't can't use my iPad for the next hour because I have to go to bed. Poor me. Okay, you know what whining is. It's anger, squeezing out through a very small opening. <laughs> Instead of whining about it, you say, I'm turning off my electronics. I'm giving my brain time to reverse the effects from the LED lights. I'm sleeping really well. I'm waking up tomorrow refreshed and energized. Um, I have a, a good amount of dreaming, because dreaming is healthy, and so on and so forth. It's what you tell your brain, whether or not it decides this is a bad thing or a good thing. So once you make the decision, 
then you can use willpower to implement that. And I think we're talking about sometime this week what willpower was designed to do and what it wasn't designed to do. It was never designed to not do something that gives you a lot of rewards. So if you're addicted to adrenaline and dopamine and you go, well, I can't use my can't use my electronics, you know, poor me. Well, you know, come on, willpower, help me not do that. Okay, willpower doesn't help you do that. It was not designed to help you not do something, especially if you're getting a reward for it. Willpower is designed to help you do something new or help you substitute a healthier behavior for one that is not so healthy for you. So stop talking about what you aren't and can't do with your electronics. Only talk about what you are doing and the benefits you're getting from that. That puts that in working memory. Willpower will help you follow through on that. Okay, got a little picture of technology. The good, bad, and the ugly. I plan to keep using it as long as I am alive, and I hope to lecture time at least 100, so that's going to be a significant chunk of time. And I do still manage it, and, and it goes off an hour before I want to go to sleep. All right, Dr. French, now do you have something you'd like to say? Thank you very much. Let's give her a hand. Basically, uh, tomorrow night, we are pushing the program back one hour. The reason for that is that Eddie is um, he's here with a special basketball team from four of them are from England, one from America, and they've got a large demonstration happening down in the auto um, from 6 to 7. So 7.15, we're going to be back here again just to support Eddie in, uh, in that, which is great. Then... Um, the night after is 7.28, so it won't be here. It'll be over in the church, just the normal 7.28 program. And then on Saturday here at 10 o'clock in the morning and then 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So that's what we've got to go over the next little while. Thank you very much for all that you've given to us again today. Thanks, folks. We'll see you tomorrow.